In the first reading, we hear how the Lord called to Samuel three times. Each time, Samuel woke up and went to Eli, saying, Here I am, you called for me. Each time, Eli told Samuel that he did not uh, call for him and instructed Eli to go back to sleep. When Eli realized that the Lord was the one trying to speak to Samuel, Eli told Samuel to go back to bed, and if the Lord called to him again, Samuel was to reply, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. The first reading is from 1 Samuel, the third chapter. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that uh, the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord. For your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli. All that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son? And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord. It's kind of an epiphany story of sorts. There was a scoutmaster of the Boy Scouts, 
and he was he was scout master master of an older group of of young men, probably later junior high, early high school age. And he was working with this troop, these six guys, um, to prepare them for a very special event. He had something in mind, and he was making sure that they were going to be ready for this event. So for about six, seven months or so, all through the winter time, getting ready into the summertime, they were preparing. He would teach them how, you know, some of the basic stuff, you know, um, some safety things, um, clothing, if it's hot, do this, if it's cold, do that, um, if they invite, you know, paying attention to weather, um, know in advance what's coming, but be prepared because sometimes where you're at, it just might rain every day. There might be thunderstorms. Where do you go if there's thunder, if there's lightning? You got to get down to some low spots. If it's going to be rainy, don't be in the low spots because the water can get you. I mean, he's trying to train them just the things about how to survive in nature. He's saying, you know, there's going to be a day when we're not in this shelter. We're not in this building. We're going to be out there in the elements. How are you going to stay warm? How are you going to, you know, if the wind's howling, where do you go? Where do you find shelter? How do you make shelter? How do you set it up, even if it's dark? If your flashlight breaks, how do you deal with it? How do you make a fire to stay warm? I mean, they're training up. They're practicing over all these things so that the day that they would go out there, they'd be ready for it. Very ready for it. Maps. Oh, they, he spent time going over maps. That's a crucial thing when you're out there. When you're reading the map, you can kind of tell when it's going to get steep because all lines get close. You know it's going to get flat because the lines get far apart. How to read your compass. Know which way to go. Where are your boundaries? Where are your highest points? How can you navigate using some of those things? So this scoutmaster, knowing these things, spent time with these young guys to prepare them for the chance to be out there. And they were pretty excited because they knew he would, he would, he would give them little glimpses as to how, how special it was going to be. But he wouldn't give them anything else. It was going to be a complete surprise for them. So the day comes. Summertime comes. The weather's just right. It was going to be a great weekend for this. So he says, we're going to load up on Friday, and we're going to be out there on Saturday. We'll come back on Sunday. That's how they, kind of how they rolled. So Friday, when they, he got off work and everybody's out of school and they could get there, they start loading up his car. His car's probably going to be like suburban. He could hold the six guys himself and then all their stuff. And um, they're loading into the suburban, so off they go. And they start their drive. And they're driving, they're weaving, they're winding, winding their way over there. The guys are sometimes messing with their phones. They're not always paying attention to what the surroundings are. They just know they're going camping, and now it's dark. Well, when they finally arrive there, it is dark. And, but they, they're, they don't know what to do. They've got to set up their tents. They've got to set up their hammocks. They've got to set up their sleeping spots, right? So that's, they go to work. They get their little flashlights. They put them on their little heads, and they in their baseball caps, and they're out there setting everything up. Um, they get all set up and they said, well, now we're hungry. So they have their little fire going. They have the rocks around it. So it's safe. And they're grilling up their things. They are professional s'more makers by the end of this night. They're all over this beautiful event. Um, when they're done with the s'mores, they lay on the mats and they look at stars. Some of them, they'd never seen stars that bright. If they'd lived in the city, they got the city light and the city lights kill the stars. You can't see them. light pollution, if you will. So they're laying there and they see the stars like for the first time. It's beautiful. The South Match are just loving this. The kids experiencing this. Time to go to bed, they go to bed. And they know it's going to be a big day, so they kind of like listen. They said, we're going to get some sleep because we're working tomorrow. Next day comes, and for the first time, they're opening up their tents, getting out of their hammocks, and they see the trees, these magnificent big pine trees. And there's, they're hearing the sound of the creek that's nearby, and they're listening to birds, and they're listening to the wind going through the pines. And it's just, they're experiencing this fresh in the morning for the first time, and they're getting excited about what's going to happen in the day. They cook their breakfast, they clean up, and they get all that stuff ready, and then they start their meeting. And he says, gentlemen, I need you to prepare yourselves for a long hike. 
This is going to be an all-day preparation kind of a hike. I need to make sure you have all your extra clothes if you need it, pack in layers. Everything we've trained on, get ready. It's going to be an all-day. Make sure you have enough water. And so he, they all showed him. He, 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 I need to show him. He, he said, go get ready. you got 20 minutes. Poof, off they go to the tents. They get everything in their packs. They come back 20 minutes later. And now, now sh- every one of you, show me what you got. And they go by every pack. And he says, now I need you to split into pairs. So six of them, three sets of three sets of two. Now in this set, between the two of you, you got everything you need. Between the two of you, you got everything you need. He went by that. Fair enough. You got all your supplies. And then some. They're packing a little heavy. They don't learn that until after they hike a long hike. They got you know, pounds is pain. So he packed heavy. The next thing he says, well, review to me the rules of the day. And they said, well, we're going to stay on the trail. There's boundaries. We won't get off the trail this way or this way. We will stay on the trail. When we get to the end, we will not pass the end. We will turn and re- we will come back. And the other boundary is time. We have to be back before dark. We have to be back before the sun's going to set. There's the boundaries. Fair enough. And he said, and what else? And he says, well, radio check you every hour. Every hour, radio check. All right. Set your alarms. One hour from now, radio check. He said, gentlemen, there's your trailhead. Go. And they went. It was a test of their skills. It was a test of some of their strength, how they've been walking and walking with the packs on. It's also a test of their courage and their sense for a vision. So they go. Scoutmaster hangs out. He sits back. He's reading his book in his hammock, enjoying the quiet and the little creek right there. It's a beautiful time for him, just kind of downtime. About two hours later, the first pair of, of hikers return. They're walking back to camp, and they're, they're kind of just kind of chilled about it, walking back to camp. They go, Scoutmaster, boy, Scoutmaster, that was, a, that was a nice hike. Okay, tell me about it. Well, we went over this fire, and we got to there, and it's really big. It's a bigger creek. This is a small creek. That's a big creek, and we saw the fish in there. We were trying to catch some fish. It didn't work out so well, but it was beautiful there. We put our toes in the ice water. That was kind of fun. And look at these. They took out of their packs some pine cones said, here's one for mom and dad, and here's one for you, Scoutmaster. And the biggest pine cones these kids have ever seen. And they were pretty excited about that. He says, all right, well, stay around the camp. If you can't see me, you've gone too far. Have fun. Fair enough. Off they went. He went back to reading his book. About five hours later, um, the second pair returned. And they returned um, a little hint of skipping in their walk because they were pretty excited about this great hike, sir. Well, tell me about it. Well, we hiked up there, and we were getting tired, but we, we saw on the side, right here along the side of the trail, we knew ahead of us that there was going to be snow. Scoutmaster, there was snow up there. It's like the summertime. How can there be snow? He says, well, it's elevated. Fair enough. And he said, oh, we, had, we threw snowball fights, and we were rolling in until our hands got cold, and we kind of got wet, but we changed clothes. But it was so much fun. And look, here's a Nelgen bottle. They reach in there, their packs, and they pull out this Nelgen bottle, and it's just packed with, well, half-melted snow and water and they were pretty excited about showing him what they had found great guys all right so now just go relax get some snacks whatever if you if you can't see me you've gone too far fair enough so they huddle off the third group they don't come in until late in the afternoon they're looking really tired i mean you can tell by their walk it's like their feet are tired from walking as far as they've walked but they're towards the end when he sees them and they see them they kind of start to jog a little bit they didn't have anything in their hands their packs were pretty much, you know, depleted of most things. They didn't have anything in their packs to show. But these two guys had like the look of victory in their eyes. Running now to the scoutmaster, they said, with great enthusiasm, they said, we have seen the sea. 
And then some of the other ones come by and hear this commotion. They said, yes, we saw the sea. It's just right over there. None of the boys knew it. The scoutmaster knew it. He had known all along that if they were to climb that mountain and get to this very top, the top of the trail, that from that place was a magnificent view, an amazing view of the slope of the mountain going down and there the sea and the cliffs going to the sea. A breathtaking view. A view and an experience that would be remembered for their life. That last pair worked hard. They worked hard to get to that mountaintop. From there, they saw the sea and participated in that view, and it was absolutely worth it. It made in their mind and their hearts for their life. We'll pause on the story now. Thinking about Epiphany now, coming back to Epiphany. One of the things I want us to think about is Epiphany. One is revealing and an unveiling. But as we think about three things of Epiphany, first thing today, I want us to consider that it almost always involves people. People are involved in God's epiphanies. If he's going to have an epiphany, somehow or another, someone's involved. Now we're going to go to the Old Testament lesson and prove this to be true. In the Old Testament lesson, there is Hannah. That is the mother of Samuel. We don't hear much about her in this lesson, but that's the mother of Samuel. Then there's Eli, this veteran prophet. And then there's Samuel. God's working through all three and a whole bunch of others in this story. Now think about how the epiphany is going to roll out. Not every epiphany starts well. Some epiphanies might come at the very end after a a very difficult and demanding life, but they come. And that's shown in Hannah's story. Hannah was a wife of about maybe a handful of wives to a good man. He was a good man. Hannah was unable to have children. The other wives had children. She was without child. And they pressed it on her. They, they, they made her feel not good about that. They hurt her feelings about not being a child. Every year when they would go to the temple and they would pray and they'd give their sacrifices, she would go and she had no child. And she would pray, God, forgive me. God, bless me with a child. And year after year, nothing. And when they're at the temple, they even had a thing in that story where some of the other wives teased her about it. They grounded into her as if being a helpful woman was not enough and being a, a, an aunt of sorts was no, no, you're not a mother. And they beat her with it, with words. Well, one year when she's going up there, she stays. Her husband is somebody, and she's staying in the gym. She's crying. She's praying. And praying in such a way that this veteran prophet thinks she's drunk. Like, how can you be praying like this? Well, it's coming from a, the heart of a broken-hearted woman, a heart that's lament. She, she's begging. She's pleading her Lord for a child. And the prophet's listening to this. He says, okay, by this time next year, Eli says to her, you'll have a child. Wow. Sure enough, she's with her husband. They have it and she conceives and she bears a child. The next year when she returns, she absolutely knows that this is the child that was a gift of God. Complete gift of God. In fact, she had made some, a statement somewhere in this part where she says, Lord, if you bless me with a child, it's yours. My first child will be your child. Just bless me with the opportunity to be a mom. And she kept her promise. When she had weaned a Samuel, her firstborn child, off of her breast milk, and he was able to be sustained on his own, she presented him to Eli. And Eli was to take him on behalf of the Lord and to raise him up as a servant to the Lord. Samuel. 
Now, you need to know something about Eli. Eli had other sons. He did. He was blessed with sons. But his sons were scoundrels. His sons were not godful men. They didn't care about the Lord. They cared about themselves. They broke the God's rules. They were unholy men. They were associated with the priest, this Eli, and they were defacing the priest and they were facing the God that the priest served in their behaviors. Eli did have a chance to speak to them and he did, but he was afraid of them. And he didn't have the courage to stand up to their evil. If they were misbehaving, Eli did not stand and say, you were wrong, stop. Eli did not control the situation and saying, this is what the Lord demands. He did not punish them for the bad behavior and encourage them to the good behavior. Eli was timid and, and not forward with that. He didn't love his sons enough to tell them the truth and bring them back. And that was God's judgment on them. However, now Hannah presents him a son. Not his, but one to raise. And Samuel had a heart for his Lord. And Samuel had a heart for people and he would be a holy man, a servant of the Lord. Now in this story, as this young man's being raised up, see how the people are all connected in this? You can't get to the epiphany without the people. Now in this story, there's going to come a a time when this, this, this baby is now grown up into a young man, young person, and he's sleeping and he hears this voice, Samuel. Well, he thinks it's, it's Eli calling. I mean, after all, this man has been his surrogate father, his, his role model, his example for godliness, even though he failed with his sons, there's still something good in this man. So he gets up to him and it's very real. It's like if I'm coming across, wake him in the middle of the night and I go over here, Mr. Ringenberg, Richard, what did you call me? And you're saying, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. I mean, I was sound asleep. What's going on? You call, no, I didn't call you. A little while later, I wake up. I go to another room. Maybe it's, like, it's just as real as this. But I mean, he's coming over and he's waking him up. Eli, you called me. No, Samuel, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. It wasn't until the third time this young guy goes out and he wakes up Eli, this prophet who's his leader. And he says, wake up. And finally, finally, Eli gets it. He says, someone's calling this young man, but it's not me. He says, okay, this is what you're going to say next time your voice is called. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. Your servant hears. From one priest to a young man, he gives a lesson. Speak, Lord. I listen. And God spoke. And he said, this is what's going to happen to Eli. He's going to be judged for his bad behaviors. He's going to be judged for his immorality. He's going to be judged for the sins of his sons and is not restraining them. There's consequences to sinful behaviors and the consequences are coming. That's the first word that came to Samuel, a young guy, against the man who's been raising him in faith. Samuel shares the story and, and, and Eli's response is a holy response. He didn't make excuses. He didn't say, oh, that wasn't me. That's not fair. That's not right. He didn't make any of that stuff. He says, it's the Lord, it's the Lord knows what he's doing. It's as the Lord says. Epiphany came to Samuel in that story. Epiphany came to Samuel through people. God is revealed to us through people. Our prayer today, we prayed for me, you prayed for me. That you would use Pastor Carpenter. I'm just a guy. I'm like a guy anybody in here. I'm no different, but that God would use me. That I'd be an epiphany of sorts. He uses us. He uses our grandparents, our parents, our uncles. He uses other. He uses strangers, people we didn't even know. God uses people. 
That's the first thing about this epiphany as we go on forward that I want us to hold on to. God is using people. Next part of this epiphany. It's personal. It's very personal. I'm going to read something in this, and it was from Psalm 139. And as I read it, I want you to, if you can, and some people, you're going, to get, you're going to get caught captured in the beauty of the words, and you're going to forget, forget counting. But if some of you have the capacity to remember the details, and no matter what's going on, count the number of times a personal pronoun is used. I, we, you, type of the thing. Count the number of times. There's going to be a lot of them, all right? Beautiful word, of, and it's personal. O Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in from behind and before you lay your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high that I cannot attain it. From where shall I go from your Holy Spirit? Or will shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. Ten verses. I love this psalm. 139. Do you have a glimpse of how many times a personal pronoun was used? How many? 22? You did well. 33. 10 verses. 33 personal pronouns. On top of that, three words that is to know. To know. All right? So the personal pronouns, that means that there's a relationship. He's not talking to it in, in some obscure thing. In that psalm, the author is saying, I know you, you know me, and I'm talking to you, and you're talking with me. It's very, very personal. Epiphany is personal. And on top of that, it gets a whole other level of personal in that the word to know. In the Bible, when, when Adam went with Eve, he knew her. They were one. And all that that means, that's to know. In those 10 verses, to know three times. 33 times, personal pronouns, three times to know. The Lord knows you. That's personal. When you think of epiphany, one, it, it's, it involves people. Two, it is incredibly personal. It's meant to be personal. The third part of epiphany to take on today. Third part. Let me make sure I'm in the right, my right order here. Holiness. Holiness. St. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians is going to talk on this part best. He wrote, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. I'm going to say that again because we need to hear that. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. That would be the cost of Jesus on the cross. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That speaks to holiness. Holiness. 
To be an epiphany on behalf of God, he calls for holiness. Eli started off that way. He lost it. But even though he was tainted, he still braced Samuel to it. And Samuel saw it. When Philip finds Nathan, Philip saw something in Jesus. He saw an epiphany. He saw God in Jesus. He saw something. He told Nathaniel. Nathaniel wouldn't believe. But he said, then come and see. We don't even have to be completely holy on our side. We just have to point to the one who is. Remember, we get everybody's attention, then we point to the cross. I like that analogy, even now. You get their attention, get their attention, then point to Jesus. That's what Philip does with Nathaniel. And when they see Jesus, they'll see God. They'll see an epiphany and a revealing holiness. When we hear of God's word um, today, the phrase for us to keep is um, living epiphanies. Living epiphanies. As you go from this church and you go to your homes and your communities and your work and your life from this day forward, think about how God is wanting to use you as a living epiphany. Parents for children is children for parents, grandparents for grandchildren and vice versa. In your families first. And then to your co-workers. And then to the ends of the earth. To the people who are just walking down the aisle with you. To be God's living epiphany. Because you never know how you're the one in that moment, in that time, that if you don't do it, it might not happen for a while. God wants to use you to be His living epiphany. When the world sees us, that the world will see His love. And all that that means that you love them enough to tell them the truth, that they're doing wrong to correct them, if they're doing right to encourage them, that you love them enough to tell them the truth, that you love them enough to embrace them in spite of them. You just love them. Love wins. Be that. That you'll forgive as God forgives. That when the world sees you, they'll see someone who forgives. Not someone who's bitter, who holds resentment, and holds mistrust, and holds all this stuff. How can you be a epiphany for God if you can't forgive? Because Jesus is about forgiveness. If you're holding on to it, you are not epiphany. You're a shadow. And God wants you epiphany. So forgive. Forgive. Let it go. Don't let it cling on you. Be epiphany. Let the world see that. When they see Christians, they won't see perfection. They'll never see that. They're not going to see that anyway. So why not admit that right up front? When, they, when you see me, you will not see perfection. I apologize in advance. I'm going to do something that's going to mess things up, and I'm sorry. I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I'm going to say, don't let us quit, and let's go back to work. Let us be that people. We will forgive. We will strive for. And we'll strive for holiness. Like, like Eli, we don't have to deny it. Yes, I've done wrong. Yes, I confess it. Yes, I admit it. No excuses. God, forgive me. People, forgive me. Let's go to work. Epiphany. When the world sees the church, how can they get a glimpse of Jesus himself? Coming back to the original story. Two scouts. They didn't have anything in their hands or their packs, but they had the look of victories in their eyes. They ran to the scoutmaster and they shouted, we have seen the sea. And they shouted to their friends, we saw the sea. They were describing it. The next day, those two scouts had the privilege to lead their four friends and the scoutmaster to that same spot. They took a slightly different path. The scoutmaster said, I know a different way. We'll do this one today, a smaller path. But they took a different path, but they got to the mountaintop. And for there, the other four could see for themselves. And by doing that, I translate that, 
those two scout people were living epiphanies for the other four. They led them to see for themselves. Come and see. That's our prayer for the church today and every day. There's different ways of saying it. But we pray that God will bless us to be living epiphanies. That where we're not shining, that He will forgive us and He will renew us and He will shine through us. That we will not be defeated by whatever, that we will shine God's love and God's power, His grace, His joy. We will be living epiphanies. Because the world needs to see that. The world's wounded. We need to show them someone who will love them and heal them in spite of them. Living epiphanies. The world needs that. And we pray that we will be that people and we will be that church. God help us. Amen.